All right, ladies, thank you for having me this weekend. This is going to be great. I'm, I'm so excited. I'm just going to uh, say the things that we're all thinking, okay, so that we can immediately just get more comfortable. Don't you think it's kind of hard to sit down in front of um, someone who's going to teach you and you don't, know, you don't know them at all? You don't know anything about them, and so you spend the first, like, 12 minutes just wondering, what is she really like, and what is this going to be like? And it can, at least for me, it's, like, such a distraction. So I was like, what can I, how can I let them know everything about me in 30 seconds? You know, like, what do they need to know so that we can all just settle in and be ready to hear from the Word of God? Um, and so here's just a couple bullet points. Um, so the most important thing to me besides the Lord and his word is my family. I'm married to Matt. Here's what you need to know about Matt. He's adorable. He has baby blue eyes and he used to be herky. <laughs> I know. Isn't that cool? Okay. So now we have three sons. Um, Micah, he's nine. You need to know he's smarter than me. Um, Matthias, he's seven. He's going to get away with everything in life because of his baby blue eyes from said father. And then Maxwell is our youngest. He was our surprise. And he's probably going to be herky, is my guess <laughs> with him. So that really sums him up quite well. We live uh, on the northeast side of Iowa City. And like Randall said, I work at Veritas, Iowa City. I really worked hard to try and figure out who we are to you guys. Are we like your mom church? You know, like we gave birth to you or something. I was like, that doesn't sound very cool. So are we like your sister church? But then it's like, you guys outgrew us like years ago. So I don't know, we're like cousins or something. Whatever we are, we are so encouraged by you guys. We love to hear what God has done in Cedar Rapids um, and, and are thankful for all the ways that you guys support us and the ways that we feel so close to you guys. So um, I have been working there for four years uh, prior to that, I was a part-time nurse, um, wasn't looking to go into full-time ministry, uh, planned to just volunteer my entire life in ministry, but was so happy uh, to get a surprise uh, move of God to come in and, and work as a women's ministry director. So I've been doing that for four years. Um, I also work with our connection groups um, and technically our children's ministry, but I'm not really very good at that. So I like to just delegate that as much as possible. Um, what else? I love french fries and early mornings. Not together. I don't like those two things together. I, I hate uh, chocolate ice cream and I hate um, when my feet are cold. How about that? Yeah. Um, I love God's word. I feel like that love was gifted to me because my dad loved God's word so faithfully, still does for so long, uh, woke up every morning, literally, of my life and walked past my dad's office where he had already been in the word for two plus hours, just quietly loving the word of God, just, just quietly serving it to us, never with uh, harshness or strictness or legalism, just showed us how good this was. So as we get started this weekend, this is what I want to tell you. This word, this book, is not just for our pastors. And this book is not just for our husbands or for the famous women that we follow on social media. I believe that this book is for us. And I believe that if we study it hard and if we study it diligently and if we study it together, we will love it more and more and more. Specifically, where we are going this weekend is the book of Hosea, as many of you know. Go ahead and open there. 
If you immediately feel awkward because you don't know where it is, it's totally okay. It's so hard to find. Just, just rip the band-aid off, go to your table of contents. No one's judging you. Mine's 977. Start with your 900s and see, if, see what you can find there. <laughs> All right. As, as you move your way there, pouring out grace to the left and the right, guys, here's, here's where we're going this weekend in the book of Hosea. Our, our big goal for the weekend in all three sessions is that we are going to look for and behold God as husband. Okay, and that might be new to some of us. We often hear God as Father, you know, God as Lord, but from the book of Hosea, we are going to look for God as husbands and then learn to see ourselves as the dearly loved wives. Okay, so we're not going to waste any time. We're going to jump right in. I'm going to start reading chapter 1, verse 1, just the first couple of verses. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Verse 2, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Okay, well, that's kind of weird. <laughs> that is super weird, kind of strange, kind of odd. Uh, if we're being honest, maybe we're already like, wow, that's kind of boring. We're going to be in a book of prophecy. Um, and, you know, it kind of sounds like, so to tell Hosea's story... We're going to need to know Israel's story, or maybe it's like God's story is going to become Hosea's story, and where am I in all of this, and how long is she going to talk, because this is not looking so good for the weekend. But let's see if we can figure out what God is telling us through the book of Hosea. So what is going on as this book opens? Well, I think before we dig in any further, we need to know where the book of Hosea fits into the whole story of God. So we're going to be looking all weekend to understand that this is one book made up of many stories. Genesis to Revelation is one book. And so let's start at the very beginning. Let's see if we can catch up in just a one-minute summary. So Genesis 1, maybe it's going to start with some familiar stories too. It starts with God coming to Adam and Eve and saying, hey, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. And he comes with them with promises and he draws near to them. Well, you guys know the story. They buckle, right? They, they bristle against God's word and decide that they want to be their own God, right? And from then on, after they go to that forbidden tree, nearness with God gets tricky. Nearness with God for the rest of the book is a lot harder than, than it otherwise would have been. The story continues with Abraham. God comes to Abraham. He says, I want to be your God. I want to be near to you. I'm going to give you people and a land. And it goes from Abraham then to the story of Isaac story of Isaac to Jacob and then Jacob and all his sons and then it ends up with Joseph in Egypt. Uh, through Joseph, the people of God are saved from famine, right? But then they're in Egypt. They become slaves for 400 years. And then God comes back onto the stage in the book of Exodus through a man named Moses. Moses rises up and delivers them, delivers the people of God from Egyptian slavery, and they all head out into the desert on their way to the promised land. God comes to them, he moves into town, he says, I'm going to be near with you, people, and I'm going to give you the promised land. They enter into Canaan 40 years later, 
God helps them uh, have victory over their enemies. Uh, we go through the judges and then the kings. David becomes king. And then David has a son, Solomon. And then Solomon has sons. And that's just about where Hosea opens. It's about 750 BC. So it's been about 200 years since David has been king. Okay, so Solomon's sons who, who didn't walk with the Lord, who didn't fear him, it was under them that the kingdom of God split into two to two territories, okay? So we have the north and we have the south, okay? And so here is where Hosea's story opens. It's Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Hosea is in the northern kingdom and he's a prophet of God. And the king at the time is Jeroboam II. And all we need to know right now is he's an evil man. And as leadership goes, so goes the people. So the people of God are not looking like the people of God. They're looking like the people around them. So God comes to his prophet, Hosea, and he comes to him and he says, Hey, Hosea, I have messages for you, messages for the people of Israel. It's messages of warning and caution, but also messages of hope. Go, Hosea, and be the sermon illustration. So he's like, I've got these messages for you, and I want you to travel all around Israel and give these sermons. But first, you're going to need a sermon illustration. Actually, you're going to be the sermon illustration, Hosea. And as we read, he says to him, go marry a woman of harlotry, a woman of whoredom. Go marry a woman of unfaithfulness. And he does it. Now, we don't know exactly if this woman like, was actually like a prostitute before he married her or if she was just unfaithful after he married her. Either way, he obeys. He marries this woman named Gomer. Let's just react now. It's bad. It's bad. Gomer. I, think that, I like how the NIV says it. Like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness. Okay, guys, so what we're dealing with this weekend is a metaphor. It's an analogy. God wants Hosea to be the sermon illustration because it's going to build this metaphor. And we're going to need to track with it through all of our time in the Word. The first three chapters of the book of Hosea build around this metaphor. So they unpack it for three chapters. And then the rest of the book is uh, like sound bites of Hosea's messages as he travels around Israel. And the book is mostly written in poetry, especially the first three chapters. Okay, so way down south in Iowa City, guys, we love to study God's Word. And what we have been working on for about four years is assuming a particular posture as we open God's Word. And I want to really quickly share with you what a couple of those things are, and then just listen for them. As we're in God's Word and you hear me talking, just listen for these Bible study tools or, or these postures that we can assume that will make us good students of His Word. So this particular posture starts with God before self, okay? So when we open up the Word of God, who are we looking to learn about? I mean, if we're honest, don't we often say, this girl? Don't we open up the Bible to learn about our life, to learn that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and gosh darn it, life's going to turn out how we hope. But actually, we're not the main story. We're not the main character. God is. We are going to learn about ourselves as we study God's Word, and we are going to learn about ourselves this weekend, but we're going to look for God first. What does this teach us about God? Secondly, we try and find this posture where we are going for a long-term investment rather than a quick fix. Okay, if we wanted a quick emotional fix, we would not have picked Hosea. Okay, but we believe that you guys can learn to study the Word of God hard 
And so we're going to go for a long-term investment. And then lastly, mind ahead of our hearts. So I'm not asking you guys to be a pure academic and leave you know, your heart in your room this weekend. Absolutely not. I'm a feeler. Absolutely. But we're going to push ourselves to let our brains lead the way to set the pace, invite our hearts then to follow right behind. Um, and here's, here's the great thing about that is, at least down in Iowa City, we are loving God's word more than ever as we try and follow um, some of, of these tips. But here's the bad thing about it. Sometimes studying the word of God in this way takes us back to a very traumatic time in life. It takes us back to junior high, right? Junior high English class, eighth grade English class. We have to go back there, and I know it's terrifying. I mean, picture with me, there I am, and I'm probably wearing my one Tommy Hilfinger shirt, right? Because we were kind of poor. My dad was a pastor, but I had one. So I just wore it like three times a week. So I'm in my purple Tommy Hilfinger shirt. I probably tried to straighten my hair. Guys, I'm not joking. This has nothing to do with the talk. What I would do in the mornings of junior high, um, we didn't have like the flat irons that I don't know who's my age in here. I'm 34. So it was like flat irons were a very big deal, but we couldn't afford them. And I also just like didn't have the know-how because everyone in my family had curly hair. So I would take my mom's old, old, old curling iron that was just like covered with old hairspray and my hair would be wet from the shower. Aww. Right? No, <laughs> no, I was like in a rush. It's like, you know, you don't even do the back. So here I am, eighth grade English class. And it's like Simba right here, right? I have just enough acne to make me miserable. Okay, but there I am, eighth grade English class. It matters because it was then that we learned how to study a book, right? And we need those study tips when we open the Bible, even though it's like the best book ever, it is still a book. So we need to learn what things like metaphors are and analogies. We need to go look up definitions of sentences. We need to watch for parts of a story, right? Like rising action and, and conclusions. And one of the most important study tips or something that I'm enjoying in my current study is learning to ask the right questions of a book. And that's what we're gonna do this weekend. We are going to say, what is this text asking? What is the question that this book, that this message, that this story is, is poking at or prodding at? And then we're gonna keep studying and we're gonna find our answer. So here's the question that I see. One of the questions, here's the one we're gonna focus on. According to Hosea, how will unfaithfulness be dealt with? How will God deal with unfaithfulness? That is our question. And what we're going to do to find this answer is we are going to just camp out in Hosea chapter 2 the whole weekend. We're going to look for these three occurrences of the word therefore. And we're going to say, hey, what's it there for? So we're going to look backwards each time. And what we're going to realize is those therefores are showing us the rescue of God, the response of God, which will then make us say, well, what do we need to be rescued from? And the verse before, the verses before, will show us three different bases of unfaithfulness, three different examples of rebellion. And it's going to lift up God as a husband God, someone who loves us dearly someone who invites us to remain near to him. So let's look at this first rescue mission. We're going to start chapter 2, verse 5. You'll notice the first therefore is in verse 6. 
I'm going to back up just right before that, actually, just to 5b. We're just going to start simply. We are just going to look at this text and ask this question. What does it say? For she said, pause, she, Gomer, okay? Let's make sure that right away we know who we're talking about. For she, Gomer, said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I, Hosea, right, the author, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She, Gomer, shall pursue her lovers and not, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Okay. We're just starting simply. So what's going on here? What has Gomer done? Well, she says, I will go. So she leaves. She leaves Hosea. And we see a list there. And then we ask the question, well, what does, what does Hosea do in response? Well, he says he's going to hedge up her way with thorns, build a wall. He's going to block her path away from him. And so maybe we realize, wait, now I have more questions. What are his motives? What's going on? Is he, is he mad? Is he violent? Is he wanting vengeance? What exactly is going on with Hosea? And, and we've got to be okay that more questions are starting to fill our minds or our papers. And then we continue. So what does she then do in response? Well, we see that she says, oh, I'll just go back. She seems to get to this point of emotion and then say, I will go and return. So maybe actually then we still have more questions and we say, wait, is that allowed? I mean, is, she, is there a way home? Can she come back after she has left Hosea for her other lovers? And we realize that we're just not through our first point and we have more questions than we started with. It's more than just how will unfaithfulness be dealt with, but we're starting to ask more and more questions of the text. Well, let's keep studying. So that's observation. That's us just saying, okay, what's it say? That's the first step. Next is interpretation. What does it mean? Okay, so remember what I said, this is prophetic poetry, okay? So you need to read it like you would read poetry. We need to remember that Gomer, in the metaphor, would be Israel, and then us, Hosea, is God. Are you tracking with me? That's our metaphor, okay? And we'll keep coming back to that. So, so what does this mean then? What has Israel done? Has Israel left the covenant love of God? Well, in, you know, in that short condensed story of Genesis through Hosea, we saw over and over again what? That God is a God of covenant, that he has come near to his people over and over again on his initiative, taking his people back and inviting them into relationship with him saying i will be your god you will be my people but israel comes into the promised land and instead of remaining faithful to him they go and they make relationships with other countries they intermarry with their neighbors their pagan neighbors and they make they make trade agreements and, and these relationships with countries like assyria and even egypt so that is how israel that's what this is describing israel has been unfaithful in these ways and then let's pause a second and say, well, what does this list mean? Do you guys see that list there? In verse 5, 
We see bread and water, wool and flax, oil and drink. Well, don't just breeze over that, but let's sit there and say, what does this mean? Why is it grouped like that? Do we see maybe that they're kind of categorized, they're kind of paired up for a reason? Could it be showing us that Israel has left the covenant love of God, gone to the other lovers, the other countries, because she believes that she'll get her daily needs? God's people think that they'll get what they need to survive, their bread and their water. We won't live if we don't have this relationship with our neighboring countries. My wool and my flax, well, what's that make you think of? Clothing, right? So we have to have clothing and then my oil and my drink, my party supplies, right? This is the good life, my oil and drink. I have to leave God. I have to go get close with these other countries. I have to trade with them. I have to intermarry with them. Why? So I can party, so I can have happiness. I need my oil and my drink. Okay, so then what does God do in response to that? If that's what Israel's done, well, then what does God do? Well, if you look at this, it's like he's saying, hey, look, watch. I will not let my people, my bride, leave me without a fight. I'm not going to let them just wander off. And so what I'm going to do, because I love them, is I'm going to hedge up their runaway path. I'm going to make it hard for them to distance themselves from me. I'm going to block them, and you know what? I'm even going to let them experience some pain from these thorns, just to deter them from their other lovers, to slow their roll a little bit. I'm gonna let them hit some walls, and I'm even gonna let them get to this point of frustration. I will go and return to my husband. Will Israel return to God? Is the question we're left asking at this point in the study. This is a moment where I love that the Bible teaches the Bible. Because this, I don't know if you've thought of this already, but this is sounding like a very familiar parable to me. This sounds like the story of the, par of the prodigal son in Luke 15. So if you want, go ahead and turn there with me. Luke 15 tells this story of the prodigal son that tells the story of the whole Bible, really. It tells the story of this younger son who asks for his inheritance early. Okay, he goes to his dad and he says, I want my share of the inheritance early. And he takes it and he packs up and he goes and he lives off in a far country and he spends his inheritance. Okay, he, he does who knows what. He goes to where there's plenty of oil and wine and he parties it up. Can you almost see him saying something similar to what Gomer has said, like, let me go. I will go. I will go to where I can get the good life and I will take care of myself. I will have this covered. I will go away and leave the, the covenant love of home and get what I need, get what I want away from you, Father. And so he goes off and he lives it up. But this runaway path of his, it leads him into a dark place. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. Or actually, I'm going to jump down to 14. Here he is on his runaway path. It says, When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He's getting to this point where the oil and the wine have dried up, his clothes are tattered and torn. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Guys, he comes to this point where he's saying, okay, it was better off for me then than now. Just like Gomer, just like Hosea is prophesying about the people of Israel. You will go and you will party it up. You will think you can take care of yourself. You're going to think that the world's going to take care of you. But you are going to get to that point where you throw your arms up in frustration and you're exhausted and you say, never mind. It was better in that covenant. It was better with that nearness of God. So let's ask this question. How will unfaithfulness be dealt with here? Let's sit in that tension. This guy has screwed up. How will this unfaithfulness be dealt with. If we don't take the time to slow our study of the Bible and to sit when there is a tension, then we miss the miracles in the Bible. Maybe because it's familiar to us and we've read it a million times. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I love this scene. Let's look closely at it. He gives him a ring. That makes me think maybe it was like a, would you call it a signet ring? Like he's saying, hey, you're back in the family business. You're a co-owner again of the family business, which would also mean inheritance. He gives him a ring and he puts shoes on his feet. Was he barefoot? Had he just gone this long trip barefoot? There's a good chance of that. But they, they uh, kill a calf, there's this feast, there's this party. I mean, he thought he left home for the party, but here's the party right here. And here's my favorite part, guys. Here's what I want to draw our attention to. He gives him a robe. So what did he look like? Was he, was he naked? Was he half naked? I don't know. But his father brings out the best robe. What did the son think he was going to be welcomed home as? A servant. Who gets robes? Royalty. The son understands that there was some level of mercy waiting for him at home, enough that he had the faith to go back. He had no idea how extravagantly his unfaithfulness would be dealt with. God, the father brings out a robe to him. He is saying, you are a prince. You are a vice regent, like how Adam and Eve are described in Genesis. 
He did not welcome him back as a servant who was going to have to pay off his debt until that memory wasn't quite so fresh. No, he welcomes him back into a royal family. That father is not putting himself in like this master boss position. He's saying, no, welcome back into covenant. Welcome back into intimacy. What, could this be our answer? Could this be the answer that, that we have building from Hosea? Could this be true for us, this talk of royalty and this description of a gracious welcoming home party, this talk of a feast and a party and grace and mercy? Could that be the answer for us, a God, a father who pursues? Well, let's finish the process and see what we can find. So we've done our observation and we've done our interpretation. And so now, now that we've been good students of the word, now we can say, okay, what does this say about us? Okay, so now we turn this story, we turn it like a mirror into our own lives. And we remember, okay, this is a poem. So Gomer, Gomer is Israel and then Gomer is us. And so do we leave God, right? Is that the question we have to ask with the mirror facing us? And if so, in what ways do we leave God? Do we behave like Gomer? Do we behave like Israel? Well, let's say why. Why would we leave the covenant love of God? Well, maybe in search of things like bread and water. You know, just those things that we need to survive, like a job. Are there ways that we kind of leave God? What about our clothing? That one maybe is a little bit harder to understand, but man, how many ways and how many ways do I leave God saying, you know what, God, I got this covered, like clothing does. And oil and drink, man, I'm with Eve a lot, and I think he might be a killjoy. I don't know if I can get the good life. I don't know if I'm gonna get my happiness, my oil and my drink, my items of luxury with God. Those are the reasons why I would leave him. And how? I mean, how do we leave him? This scene, this poem kind of paints this dramatic scene of, you know, maybe this impulsive, emotional woman breaking free from her home saying, let me go. And maybe that's a miss for us. You know, we're, we're adults, we're women, we have common sense, we're responsible, so maybe we wouldn't leave God in that way. But I do think that we should say, are there ways that we slowly and ever so subtly leave the nearness of God? How often do we slowly just stiff arm him when he's just a little too close? He's asking too many questions. He's pressing in too hard on our comfort, the things that we love, and we keep him at a distance. This is part of my story, a story that I want to share with you guys um, a little bit by bit this weekend. So um, my husband and I went to undergrad at Iowa. And uh, after, so in 2007, I graduated with my nursing degree and we moved out to Denver to, for my husband to go to Denver Seminary to get his master's in youth and family ministries. And we had this plan for life, my, my plan from the time I was 14. So from the time I gave up on um, being the first woman in the MBA, I switched to, um, being a pastor's wife. So 
Um, and, and it happened. So here I am and I'm married and my husband is going to be a pastor and life is going just as I planned it. We're living in Denver. It's fabulous. Um, a year into school, he gets hired on at a huge church. Um, well, it was, it was huge when we started. It was 1,500 people. So is that about what you guys are now? Something like that? Um, by the time we left, five years later, it was 6,000 people. Okay, so we're there at a very unique time, where, which a lot of you guys have gone through with lots and lots of growth. Well, when you're on the staff of that side, um, it feels like success. When a church grows that quickly and you're on staff, it feels like success. And my husband, um, he was a youth pastor and he was very good at what he did. And I wasn't on staff, but I was there at everything. And I loved it, working with junior high and high school girls. And, um, you know, it got to this point, the first, the first four years were good and, and they were fruitful, um, but there was some, some seeds of pride that were slowly getting planted in my heart. And here's why. I thought that I was providing all the things that we needed for life and for the happy life, the good life. Um, I thought that I was the one who was uh, creating all this goodness and in the slowest slowest of ways, I started to distance myself from God. Did not know I was doing it at that time at all. Been in the church my entire life. Um, did not understand that I had stopped thinking of God as a husband or, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to put the words to it at that time, you know, but I stopped thinking of God as someone I was intimately close with and instead started to think of him as a boss that I was impressing. He was somebody who was going to do my year-end eval and he was going to give me tens all the way down because look at this, God. Look at all this ministry. Look at all these changed lives. Look at this conference. Look at the attendance. Look at how my teaching, my stage has gotten bigger and bigger. Aren't you impressed, God? And, and I could see myself now in hindsight, you know, standing next to him with my chest out and my chin up thinking, man, I bet he's glad I'm on his team. And God, in his grace, would not sit by while I gave myself to so many other lovers. While I gave myself to the affirmation and affections of other people. He would not sit by while I was building a fan club rather than disciples, as I've heard it said. Um, he came after me and his jealousy, and he wanted to pull me out of what I call the brothel of my heart. And the hedges, you know, from the poem, the hedges, the first hedge I hit was conflict. And I hit it hard. I was running hard. I hit it really hard. This woman called me out on my sin. And I went from zero awareness to how messed up I had been thinking about God and performing for him and why he loved me to complete awareness at that time. And the tears fell hard and fast. I made a scene in the Starbucks for three hours because what happened in that moment, that moment when I hit that hedge, when I hit that wall and those thorns of caution pierced very deeply is that God showed me, God whispered to me that the accusation she was bringing up against me was hardly even the start of it. She saw just the tip of the iceberg and God saw 
everything beneath it. He saw how long my unfaithfulness had been building. He saw how long I had been loving the affection of the multitudes rather than his approval of me. He saw how long I'd been working and and functioning as a performer within the church. The pride that she saw was inches deep, and the pride that my husband God revealed to me that night was miles deep. It was a mercy that I hit that hedge, that that conflict came. But that night I went home broken, and I went home, and I, guys, I, I, I honestly started this prayer. I laid in my bed. I am just swollen as swollen can be, and everyone's asleep in my house. And I vow to God, I start to say, I will do better. I will work my way out. I will not let pride rule me again. I will not gossip. I will not pit people against each other. And I'm rattling these things off God, coming to him as this master, like the prodigal son planted. I will come back to him and I will work myself out. I will prove myself. And he stopped me on the road. When I was still far off, he stopped me and he welcomed me home into love and into intimacy. And it's like I was hearing the gospel for the first time rather than the millionth time. And I just stopped right there. And I kind of caught my breath like, oh my gosh, I was about to pick up the same bad thinking. I was about to put that same stuff on that independent, that self-reliant flax and wool, thinking, I got this covered, God. You are going to be so impressed. I am going to do good works for you. He stopped me, and he clothed me. He gave me his love and his mercy and his forgiveness. Guys, the applications for my story are, are so many. The applications from Hosea are so many, but I don't want us to miss a chance to be specific. I don't want you guys to miss an opportunity for God to ask you something specific. And so one of the things that I think we need to ask each other, one of the things that God asked me as I studied this book, is that do we leave God because we want control? Do we leave God because we want control? Control is a really big deal among women, isn't it? Sitting underneath this umbrella of control issues is fear issues, trust issues. And I think that we slowly and subtly leave God because we want more of a sense of control. So we leave this place of abiding in him, remaining in him, waiting on him. Why? We say, I will go and I will scurry around until I can get some sense of control, until I don't need anything else, God. I'm going to make sure that there's bread and water or a savings account, and then maybe I'll be back, God. Or I scurry away and I say, you know what, God, I don't need anything from you. I got this covered. And then my skills, my charisma, my my personality, your personality, your ability to plan ahead or your ability to eat healthy or, or keep a tight schedule. It's for all of those things that we just end up grouping ourselves with our sister Eve, saying, you know what, God, I can't trust you. I can't trust you to be on the throne. You're holding out on me. You're a killjoy. Life with you is terrifying. 
And so I'm going to scoot you off and I'm going to sit on that throne. God, you may never bring me the things that I need. You may, if I, if I trust you, if I stay with you and you're in control, then I may never get the things that I need, a husband or a godlier husband or the social life that I want or the IRA that I need or even as silly as an open floor plan. These are the things that we slowly and subtly leave God for. So often when we are searching and running off for a sense of control, we are being unfaithful to God. So let's ask the question, what will he do? How will he respond to our unfaithfulness? But what I see from this text is that first, God reveals to us. His response is that he reveals to us his omnipresence. So this is one of those times where we say, God is fill in the blank. And we're going to build a list throughout the week. God is omnipresent. Fancy word, meaning God is everywhere at once. He's everywhere, not limited by time or space. He's not bound by location. So that means that even when we leave him, he is with us, right? I think of Psalm 139, a psalm that is so underrated, but we read that he is behind us. We read that he is before us, that he hems us in. Do you guys know those verses? And then it says that his hand is upon us. So even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Never will he leave us. Never will he forsake us. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But maybe even that doesn't actually hit home with us, guys. Maybe that's just the Sunday school answer. Oh, God is everywhere. But it's all different when we say, God is here. God is here right now. So where do you need him? Do you need him in front of you? Like it says in Psalm 139. Do you need him in front of you blocking your way away from him? Do you need him behind you, almost pushing you away from these other lovers that you would otherwise drift away to? Do you need his hand upon you, keeping you near to him? Don't we all agree with the song that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do we hear God saying in that song, stay put? Beloved, stay, bride, this way, not that way. Stay in nearness with me. God responds to us by revealing to us his omnipresence. And secondly, he reveals that he is jealous. God is jealous. And because of this, he may allow us to have a tough season. Part of his response to us may be that he allows us to experience pain. Let's make sure we understand what I mean by jealous. And we'll continue to talk about this. I think all of our minds are probably tainted with the world's understanding of jealousy, right? Most of the time we think of jealousy coming from a place of insecurity, doesn't it? Or a place of neediness. Insecurity means, you know, jealousy means we kind of own someone or we need something from them. That ownership is necessary to be happy, but that is not the jealousy of God. 
God by his very nature has no need. So God can't be insecure and that's really good for us. But when we say that he's jealous, guys, it's really important for us to understand what is he jealous for? He's jealous for his glory. He is jealous for his glory. And so that is why he can't just sit back while you and I wander off to brothels of the heart, while we wander off to other lovers. His jealousy coexists in this beautiful, mysterious way with his love and his mercy. And because of that, he comes after us, not because he needs us, but because he loves us. And so is this you right now? Are you experiencing the jealousy of God and that he has allowed you to feel pain right now? Is this you? Are you feeling lost? Are you feeling frustrated? Are you at that point where you are ready to throw your arms up? Are you feeling stuck in your relationship with him, stuck in your way of thinking, stuck in your habits and your addictions? Are you at this point in life where maybe you're hitting roadblocks? You just can't seem to get through pursuing what you think will make you happy, pursuing what you think you need. And maybe are you even feeling those thorns of caution, those thorns that are just poking in, warning you, saying, hey, not that way. Beloved, not that way, this way. Come back to me. Is that you tonight, this weekend? Is that you in this current season? <coughs> if so, what do we do? If that is us tonight, how then do we respond to God's omnipresence? and his jealousy. We surrender. We get to that point where we throw our arms up and we say, I'm exhausted. It was better before than it is now. It was better when I was near to God than it is now. Specifically, we need to surrender our hopes for control. I do not stand up here and say that lightly as somebody who has got this figured out. I struggled with it even this week. This lust for control even. Just this desire to make life feel safer. That this life of faith will have measurable outcomes, to use a nurse phrase. We need to surrender our hopes for control. So controlling money, controlling safety, or the safety of maybe our kids or our parents, the control for our plan for life. Surrender, and we need to stop fleeing down these runaway paths that take us to the doorsteps of other lovers. We need to surrender. What is that issue in your life that just won't progress or resolve? What is it that has driven you to that point of frustration? Can you stop there? And can you surrender and say, 
We will return. I will return. Maybe it's a long way home. Maybe you've been distancing yourself from God for years. Or maybe it's just these subtle ways of thinking of him as a master, as a boss, as a CEO. No matter what it is, may our response be, we will return. Nearness with our husband God is better. Let's pray. Father, husband God, Lord, we confess to you that possibly even it's weird to think of you as a husband. That this book of the Bible kind of stands out like an awkward misfit as it invites us to consider you in this light. But Lord, we want to be brave and we want to consider you in this way. Lord, we do not want to see ourselves as the impressive prophet who stands next to you and calls all the other adulterous women home. But Lord, we know that we are Gomer. We are Israel. And so we want to return. Lord, it's your kindness that brings us home. So Lord, in big dramatic ways or in quiet, still ways, we fix our eyes on your love. We want to behold it in a new way. We want to delight in you, God. And so we thank you ahead of time for the mighty work that you will do in our minds, in our hearts, in our hands this weekend. Amen.